Good morning. Let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you are our Father, and we ask that your spirit of truth and love will join us, enlighten our minds, bring us into the unity that you've promised through Jesus, we pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson four in the quarterly, the book of Revelation, and the title is Worthy is the Lamb. And the second paragraph reads, the vision of chapter four and five takes place in heaven's throne room, the scene of Chapters 4 and 5 symbolically portrays God's control of history and the plan of salvation. What do you think of this idea, God's control of history and the plan of salvation? Does God control history? I'm glad you all said that. I was going to ask you, in what way does he control history? And, uh, you know, are people puppets? What about the rise and falls of nations? When we read in the Bible prophecy of the nations and God predicts these nations are going to fall and these nations are going to rise, is God making it happen this way? Is is God the one who is inspiring the Babylonians to, you you read the prophecies that I'm going to call the Babylonians to you, Israel, I'm going to call my my servants. Is he inspiring them to, to conquest, to domination of others, inciting in their hearts a desire for war, rape, pillage, killing, enslaving, and abusing? Is God inspiring them to go do this? Why do, why do we say he's in control of history? Okay, so he, he has foreknowledge, so he knows the history, but that doesn't mean he's controlling it. Let, let's break the second half out and deal with that real quick, because it said... God's control of history and the plan of salvation is God in control of the plan of salvation. Yes, he's in control of the plan of salvation because it originates in him, it's instituted by him, it's carried out by him, it's presented to us through him and his resources. He doesn't control who receives it, but the plan is his. So consider this quote from Ellen White in the SDA Bible Commentary, page 1117. The Lord is regarded as cruel by many in requiring his people to make war with other nations. They say that it is contrary to his benevolent character, but he who made the world and formed man to dwell upon the earth has unlimited control over all the works of his hands, and it is his right to do as he pleases and what he pleases with his work of his hands. Man has no right to say to his maker, why do you do this? There is no injustice in his character. He is the ruler of the world, and a large portion of his subjects have rebelled against his authority and have trampled upon his law. He has used his people as instruments of his wrath to punish wicked nations who have vexed them and seduced them into idolatry. Ellen White, Bible Commentary 1117. When you hear stuff like that, you you guys got to know when you're dealing with people from the level 4 in a law and order type mindset, they love quotes like this. How do you process them? How do you hear them? What law lens are you looking through when you hear stuff like that? So if God is unlimited control over all the works of his hands, and he's in control of what the nations do, I hope your mind are asking questions. Questions are good. Then why did God not just have all the wicked nations repent and become righteous nations? If he's in control. I mean, you really think where that takes you. Either he's not a good God, he's a God of war. Mars, the God of war. He's a God who likes blood and guts and violence, and therefore he doesn't want righteous nations. He wants conflict, therefore he's in control. Or he doesn't actually control what the nations are doing. Doesn't the fact that they rebel against him indicate he's not in control? Look at just the nation of Israel, what we have recorded in Scripture. How many times did they rebel against him? He's given them directives, given them directives. Doesn't that indicate he's actually not in control of what they're doing? 
If he was in control, Adam wouldn't have sinned. So, while God is not in control of what people are doing, so I guess we, we need to answer the question, then how does he have unlimited control? If we believe that statement at all. And we just say, no, she's wrong. Or do we believe it, but we have to understand the meaning and the application. So, if he's not in control of what people are doing, he remains in control of all the laws upon which the universe operates, which enables them to do what they do. If you understand what I just said, he is in control of all the laws upon which the universe operates. Law of gravity, laws of physics, law of thermodynamics, quantum laws, the laws of entanglement. All the laws that control reality, he sustains them and controls them and keeps them in operation, which gives us the platform, atmosphere, space, including the freedom, because one of the laws, law of liberty, the freedom to do all the things we do. So God's in control of reality, the laws and protocols upon which all life operates, but he's not in control of the actual choices of people. From the same author that said he has unlimited control, here's the same author, Great Controversy, page 591. God never forces the will or the conscience, but Satan's, con- but Satan's constant resort to gain control of those whom he cannot otherwise seduce is compulsion by cruelty. Through fear or force, he endeavors to rule the conscience and to seduce homage to himself. To accomplish this work, he works through both religious and secular authorities, moving them to the enforcement of human laws in defiance of the law of God. What kind of law is being described in this passage that Satan uses? What type of law? What type of laws do humans pass? Imposed imperial laws, which are contradictory, different than the laws of God, which are design protocols upon which reality operates. Is there a theology that the whole world basically embraces that is predicated upon imposed law and actually teaches that our God in heaven, in order to be just, must use coercive power to punish and threaten those who break his law? Well, that's paganism, sure, but is there a Christian theology and does it have a name? Can you name it? Penal substitution theology is the modern-day Baal worship, paganism, coercion. It is exactly what's being described here. The, the, the threat of a powerful deity saying, if you break my law, I am going to use my power to hurt and punish you. That's coercion, and that destroys love. If you can't resonate, if you can't feel what I'm talking, if you can't get yourself where that's going, just try it on your significant other. Tell your significant other, whoever it is, that you love them, but if they don't do what you say, if they don't obey your directives, you will, tonight, pour gasoline on them and light them on fire while they sleep. And thus, if you read, if read Revelation... The wine of Babylon, which intoxicates the entire world, it is a thought process. It is a belief system in which we take into our minds that causes us to have a stuporous or a foggy view of how reality works. And that foggy view is that God runs his universe like us. And so then you, you see the whole world, even if they're not Christian, the Christianity that they view is a Christianity of an authoritarian God who will punish. And they react to that. The whole world is reacting to that view. Consider these quotes. Mind, Character, Personality, page 707. Second volume. The discipline, discipline means 
discipling, teaching. It's not punishment. Punishment comes from the word punitive, means to exact vengeance upon. Discipline comes from disciple, means to teach. The discipline of a human being who has reached the years of intelligence should differ from the training of a dumb animal. The beast is taught only submission to its master. For the beast, the master is mind, judgment, and will. This method, sometimes employed in the training of children, makes them little more than automatons. Mind, will, conscience are under the control of another. How many actually teach that this is what God wants from us? God said it, I believe it, that settles it. We don't ask questions, we don't understand why. He's in charge, we just do what he says. Well-trained dog. Does God want the obedience of a well-trained dog? This is uh, Desire of Ages 550. In matters of conscience, the soul must be left untrammeled. You know what untrammeled means? To trammel something is to hinder it. So the soul must be unhindered. No one is to control another's mind, to judge for another, or to prescribe his duty. God gives to every soul freedom to think and to follow his own convictions. In all matters where principle is involved, let every man be fully persuaded in their own mind. In Christ's kingdom, there is no lordly oppression, no compulsion of manner. That is not penal substitution theology. Penal substitution theology, there's a ruling authority who will get you, and you better not step out of line because they'll punish you. And when we get to the hereafter, we're all perfect. Sin will never rise again because Jesus already paid the penalty. He's already shown everyone. Everybody steps out of line. He just, he just vaporizes you at that, at that point. Wendell. Stated correctly, when you think that you are being controlled by the laws that God has set up, that you are in harmony with the laws, but the terminology is often written in Mrs. White as well as being controlled by the Holy Spirit. So controlled by the Holy Spirit, let's just walk that through with some scripture. We surrender to God, open our heart, the Spirit comes in, and we are, quote, controlled by the Holy Spirit. Would we develop the fruits of the Spirit? And the last fruit of the Spirit is... Self-control. And so the Holy Spirit works by restoring in you the abilities and capacities to live in harmony with God's design where you are actually set free as a free sentient being who loves what God loves, who, who values what God values, who practices the methods and principles, who lives in harmony with his design. You have recovered your dignity, your autonomy, your self-governance. You're not a puppet. You're set free. That's the control of the Holy Spirit. That's why it says in Scripture where the Spirit is, we have freedom. The Spirit brings freedom. One more quote, Zara of Ages 466. It says, In the work of redemption, there is no compulsion. No external force is employed. Under the influence of the Spirit of God, man is left free to choose whom he will serve. In the change that takes place when the soul surrenders to Christ, there is the highest sense of freedom. You can't get the highest sense of freedom with the altar call. Have you seen the altar calls? And I've seen this. I was uh, a few years back, I was at a local church, and the pastor gave a, a nice sermon. And at the end of the sermon, he said, I want to open it up for somebody, if nobody's ever given their heart to the Lord, to somebody who would like to give their heart to the Lord, and enter into discussions for baptism. I'd like to open up the... the uh, and there was probably 1,500 people in attendance, a large church. One person came forward. Then the pastor moved on, and he said, before this hour closes... I don't want to close this opportunity. Someone might leave here today. And this might be their last chance. They might leave here today. They might get hit by a car. They might lose their chance. They might suffer in the torments in the future, blah, blah, blah. And the the fear, the fear, instead of the love, the fear. 
I counted, 30 people came forward. Why did you come forward? Well, because if I didn't, I might be punished. No compulsion, highest sense of freedom. So God is in control of himself, his actions, his designs, his methods, the sustaining of how he has constructed reality to run. And because his laws or the laws of monetarily exist, as people pass beyond the point of responding to the movements of God, truth, love, the spirit of truth and love, and God releases them to their choice, they suffer the results of being out of harmony with God and his designs for life. And ultimately, all deviations from God's design, one day in the future, will be eliminated as God restores his universe back. Remember, it says in Galatians 6.18, those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction, not from God. That's design law. Sunday's lesson, second paragraph, the apostle looked through the open door into the heavenly temple and at, at the throne of God. The throne symbolizes God's rule and governing authority over creation, while the rainbow around the throne signifies God's faithfulness to his promise. However, Satan has usurped the dominion of this earth and as God's adversary has disputed divine authority. The central issue in the great controversy between God and Satan is about who has the right to rule. The purpose of the heavenly council that John saw gathered in the heavenly throne was to affirm God's rightful rule over the universe. <coughs> so first question, the throne of God. If you read in the text, the throne of God... which Ezekiel sees in Ezekiel 10, which they're referencing here, Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10. The throne is a sapphire throne. It's a sapphire throne. And, 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 and the throne is above something, or there's something beneath the throne. You remember what's beneath the throne? Well, the throne is resting on something. A rotating wheel inside a moving circle inside a rotating wheel with cherubim. And above that is a sapphire throne. What do you think this symbolizes? A sapphire throne above a rotating moving circles, wheels within wheels with cherubim. Do you remember when the Ten Commandments were initially given, the first set, what were they written upon? Stone. Sapphire. Uh, is Exodus 24, 9 and 10. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel went up to see God. Under the, his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. And then it says, come up to me in the mountains, stay, and I will give you the tablets of stone. And the tablets of stone, the only stone mentioned in the par paragraph here, is the sapphire at their feet. Well, that's kind of, kind of a stretch to, to, to conclude that. So then you read in Numbers 15, by the way, what color is sapphire? Numbers 15, 37 to 39. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel, tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout the generations and to put a blue thread in the tassels on the corners. And you shall have the tassel that you may look upon and remember all the commandments of the Lord your God and do them. So the blue thread was to remind them of the commandments. Why do you think maybe they were to remind them of the commandments? Do you think maybe the commandments are written on sapphire, on blue stone? So... If you keep reading, and you remember the first set given to Israel on the sapphire, the Sabbath was given to remember creation, which is design law, written on the sapphire. Now look at the harlot of Revelation. The harlot of Revelation, I won't read it all because you know, we're going to make sure we can make it through some other things in class, but in Revelation 17, it describes the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold. What color does she not have? 
Well, if you're not sure, look at the high priest. Here's the high priest of God. Now, the, scar- the, the harlot of Revelation has purple, scarlet, and gold. Here's the high priest. They shall take the gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and the fine linen, and they shall make an ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread. So the high priest has gold, blue, purple, and scarlet, but the harlot has purple, scarlet, and gold. What's the harlot not have? And what's the blue representative of? The law of God. His, his design law. And the harlot doesn't have it. The harlot instead has something else. Uh, Exodus 28, 28, you shall, uh, remember the breastplate? And on the breastplate there are 12 stones. And the 12 stones, one for each of the 12 tribes, symbolically representing the peoples of the earth. And so our high priest in heaven carries the peoples of the earth near his heart. What do you think the breastplate was tied to the high priest with? Threads of gold. No, not threads of gold. Threads of blue. Mm-hmm. Exodus twenty-eight twenty-eight. They shall bind the breastplate by means of its rings to the rings of the ephod using a blue cord. What is it that ties us to God? His design laws, how he built life to operate, the law of love and all the other laws, this is what binds us to him. The false religions of the world, including false Christianity, deny God's law of love. They don't deny the Ten Commandments, but teach them as imposed rules functioning like human law. Thus no blue thread. So what does the throne of sapphire represent? God's government of love. And it's sitting upon a moving wheel inside a rotating circle, which is the law of love functionally acted out. Remember the law of love, other-centered giving that never ends? We've given all those examples in nature before. With the cherubim uh, representing the intelligent beings of God live under a universe governed by a being of love who operates and we operate on the principles of love as well. The lesson notes that the central issue in the controversy between God and Satan is about who has the right to rule. So how in heaven did Satan attack God's right to rule and how did he advance that argument? With, with angels that are sinless, no carnal natures, you know, he didn't open up a drug distribution link, he didn't open up a prostitution hub. I mean, he didn't do this stuff in heaven. How did he get sinless angels to rebel? What was the issue? God's character was attacked, yes, but... How specifically? Lies, yes. He claimed equality. He did claim equality with Christ. Yes, he attacked God's law through alleging equality with Christ, through suggesting God was arbitrary, and he makes up rules. How? Christ, who is God, entered infinity and would go into the councils with the infant one because he's an infinite one. And Lucifer was jealous and alleged that that was an arbitrary choice. It wasn't a design choice. It wasn't because functionally they were different beings. He tried to claim equality with Christ, that he should be allowed in there too. So this was an arbitrary choice, which is imperialism. And this is how God's law works. Angels were inherently holy. They couldn't make any bad decisions. Do you remember, the? I don't have the quote with me. I've got a different quote. But Ellen White uh, at one point said, the thought... Uh, the, the fact that, there were, that God had a law came to the angels is something unthought of. Now think that through. What kind of law can be in operation, can be applicable to your life, that you're accountable to, and you have no knowledge of it? Imposed law. Imposed law can work that way? 
No, it can't work that way. You cannot be held accountable for a law that you have no knowledge of and it actually be in operation in your life if it's imposed. You have no idea. You're driving out there and, there's no, and the speed limit, you have, it's not posted anywhere. You have no idea what the speed limit is. You have to be informed of it to be accountable. But when, when uh, Newton wrote down and told people, hey, here's the law of gravity. What do you think people said? There's a law of gravity? Well, I never thought of that. That never crossed my mind that there was a law of gravity. It's just how things work. See, it's an unthought of law. The laws of friction and motion. You rub your hands together really fast and they get warm. You know, there's a law about that. (laughs) Really? I never thought of that law. That never crossed my mind. This is the kind of law that can be unthought of, yet you're still accountable to it. Well, here's another quote. Notice this one, Desire of Ages 761. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared that God's law could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. And what does penal substitution theology teach? Sin must be punished. That's Satan's view all along. And that then puts the creator God who built reality to operate in harmony with his character of love. And as long as we stay in harmony with his laws, there's nothing but health and life and happiness and goodness. But when you break those design laws, like tying a plastic bag over your head and hoarding your carbon dioxide to yourself, you break that kind of law, there's a consequence. And that consequence is suffering and death. The wages of sin is death. Those who sow sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. And so God is working through Christ to restore his creation back into harmony with his law. But Satan says, no, that's not the problem. There is nothing inherently wrong with sin. If you break God's law, there is really nothing that happens to you except you offend the guy in charge. And God is required now to use his power to punish you. If we could just get God some anger management classes, we could live eternally in sin because there's nothing wrong with sin. There's only something wrong with a God who will punish you for it. This is penal substitution theology. It's corrupting, it's corrosive, it's prevented the church from taking the final message of mercy to the world. We never will finish our our mission as a people to teach people about God's character of love and prepare them to meet him face to face as long as we teach that God is the one we need to be protected from. Do you think Satan really believed that? Uh, You know, I don't know whether he believed it or not or he just used it. If you read Ellen White in various places, she talks about how he didn't fully comprehend where his thoughts were leading and he he couldn't see the future and he really didn't have full appreciation of the course he was on at the time. So. Do you understand that when when you coerce somebody, when you threaten to punish somebody, When you do those types of things, what happens to love? It's a violation of the law of liberty. See, what does God actually want from all of his creatures? He wants our trust. He wants our love. He wants our loyalty. He wants our devotion. And can you get any of that by threatening people who don't give you love, trust, loyalty, and devotion? You can't get it. This is why Satan loves for people to believe that God's government works like our government. By the way, if you've been in court before, which sounds like you haven't, if you tell the judge you didn't know something, he'll say ignorance is no excuse. 
it, it, it depends on what you don't know. If it's something that is actually common knowledge and, and it's posted everywhere, I didn't know the speed limit was 35 out there, but it was obvious. And, but actually, it is an excuse. Not knowing what the laws are, if the laws are, are um, obscure, unknown, you are uninformed, that is, that is an excuse. So it, it, it depends. So what happens to someone's individuality if they surrender to oppression? I want you to get your mind what I'm teaching you. That when, when somebody violates your autonomy and begins to coerce and, 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 and pressure, not only do you have less love, you have a desire to rebel. That desire to rebel against coercive tactics is godly. If somebody is holding your head underwater and drowning you, and you have a desire without drowning or killing, you don't want to kill them, but you rebel against the drowning, you want to get your head above water, you want to get, that desire to get out from the drowning is godly. If somebody is in a relationship where your individuality, your person that is being submerged under the control of a controlling spouse, for instance, and you have to submit to their authority, submit to their thinking, do what they say, and your individuality is being drowned, it is godly to rebel against that. To stand up and establish your own individuality, your own capacity for thinking, give them the freedom to pout if they want to pout, to cry if they want to cry. You, you don't do something just because they will punish you with some act of emotional abuse. But if instead you surrender to some external authority, some other person to do your thinking for you, there's a, well, I'll, I'll read this quote from Ellen White. It's uh, quite interesting. It's out of Second Testimonies 129. If we make the mistake, excuse me, if we mistake the wisdom of man for the wisdom of God, we are led astray by the foolishness of man's wisdom. I'm going to pause right there. I would submit the core foundation to human wisdom that all human organizations in the entire planet are constructed upon is imposed rules. Every human organization is built on imposed rules, which require oversight and, and imposing of some type of consequence or punishment. Every human system. That's human wisdom. And it sounds so right. And you, you can't have an organization if you don't have rules. And you can't have rules if you don't have punishments. It is so wise. It is so right. This is human wisdom. And if you substitute God's wisdom for human wisdom... We are led astray by the foolishness of man's wisdom. Here is the great danger of many in, and it's left blank, you can fill in the blank, Collegedale. They have not an experience for themselves. They have not been in the habit of prayerfully considering for themselves with unprejudiced, unbiased judgment. Boy, that's, that, those two words are really packed. Unprejudiced, unbiased judgment, meaning you're looking at the evidence and letting the evidence speak for itself rather than already knowing what the evidence tells you before you even go. Unprejudiced, unbiased judgment, questions and subjects that are new and are ever liable to arise. They wait to see what others will think. If these dissent, that is all that is needed to convince them that the subject under consideration is of no account, whatever. Authoritarian organization, I surrender to my pastor, my priest, my pope, my bishop, my Bible teacher, somebody else who studied, I surrendered, and I look to them to tell me what it means. Although this class is large, it does not change the fact that they are inexperienced and weak-minded through long yielding to the enemy and will always be as sickly as babes, walking by others' light, living on others' experience, feeling as others feel, and acting as others act. They act as though they had not an individuality. 
Their identity is submerged in others. Submerged in others. They are merely shadows of those whom they think are right. Unless these become sensible of their wavering character and correct it, they will all fail of everlasting life. They will, all be, they will be unable to cope with the perils of the last day. They will possess no stamina no, to resist the devil, for they do not know that it is he. Someone must be at their side to inform them whether a foe or a friend is approaching. They are not spiritual. Therefore, spiritual things are not discerned. They are not wise in those things which would relate to the kingdom of God. Second Testimony 129. This is, what's described here is not a system of rules. This is describing design law. How reality actually works. Yes? What if instead of rules, there is a mission for organization? Missions are great. Yeah, missions. Instead of rules, you have a mission. You have a vision. You know, Amos says where there's no vision, the, the people perish. So having a vision or a mission, that's a, a great thing. And organizing to, to uh, achieve that mission is a great thing. But rules that require conformity, that's how human systems run. Monday's lesson. So I'm going to read portions of Revelation 4, starting at 4-6, through chapter 5. I guess I'll skip some portions because it's kind of long. But, but I, I want, to, want you to get a sense of what's happening here. This is from the NIV. Also before the throne... There was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and back. The first living creature was a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had the face of a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under the wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. When other living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who, who lives forever and ever. They say, they lay their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord and God, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll, even look inside. And I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll with the seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if he'd been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and elders. I'm going to skip down a little bit. They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And, your blood, and, and with your blood you purchased for men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of, and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and heard a voice of many angels numbering thousands, thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne of the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea and all that in them singing to him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. 
What's being described? The natural response of the universe to a God of love. Is that all, or is there an actual event taking place here? That's true, but is there an event? Pentecost. So, do you see a being taking his throne and being coronated? And who's the being being coronated, taking his throne? The lamb who was slain. So, Jesus is coming to take his throne. He's being recognized by the entire universe as being worthy to rule. He's taking his throne in consensus and agreement. He always is right, but now there's consensus and agreement from all those being ruled that he's worthy to rule. And he's being worshipped, and he takes a book and opens it. A book sealed with seven seals. Now, when you realize that's... First off, did I misdescribe it, or is that a reasonable description of what's happening? The ascension of Jesus. Yes, yes. Is it a reasonable description? Yes. Okay. Does that description sound familiar to some other place in Scripture where they describe the same thing? Let me read you Daniel 7, 9, 10, and 13, and 14. Notice the similarities here. And I looked. Thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took a seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and his hair on his head was white like wool. His throne was flame with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him, and 10,000 by 10,000 stood before him. Do you see a similarity here in what was described a moment ago? The court was seated, and books were opened. Were books being opened in Revelation? Interesting. In my vision of the night, I looked, and before me was one like the Son of Man coming with clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Do you see any similarity between what I just read in Daniel and what was read in Revelation? I, I really think these are describing the same events. Slightly different wording, but very, very similar parallels here. And what's being described is the coronation of Christ as the ruler of heaven and earth in a consensus agreement of all the intelligent beings who were there to see and be part of that process and the opening of a book with seven seals. I hope your minds are kind of turning right now. When you, historically, when you read about Daniel 7 and the court was seated and the books were opened, do you think of the book with seven seals? No. Because we go to the scripture already knowing that God's law works like our law. And there's been a bunch of sins from all the bad people. Well, that's all of us. All of our sins have been recorded in the books. And and we've got to have a court scene. And the court that's seated here is not the royal court. It's the judicial court. Now, the Bible doesn't actually say judicial court. It just says the court. And if you see what's happening, there's a coronation happening. This is a royal court where Christ is receiving all power, all authority. Certainly, if there is judicial authority, if you like that word, in God's government, he's receiving that as well. But it goes well beyond that. It's the reign. He's the reigns of all reality are in his hands. And the book of the seven seals are opened. We'll come back to that book in a moment. Let's, Let's briefly touch on the 24 elders. The lesson asks about the 24 elders, and the lesson then wonders doesn't answer, wonders. I wonder what those 24 elders are. Possibly are those the people who were ascended at the, at the you know, first fruits during Christ's resurrection. Is that who they are? It, it kind of wonders and throws that out as a possibility. I ask you instead, can you think of any scripture 
in which 24 other people are actually mentioned related to heaven. Well, I'll read it to you. Revelation 21, 10 through 14. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now we have 12 names. 12, 12 names. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles. Now we have 12 and 12 equals? We have 24. Named individuals. Hmm. Uh, why... What do you think is it depicted by three gates on each side and the 12 tribes? Well, you remember in the Old Testament symbolism, the 12 tribes are symbolically representative of all the peoples of the world. And so you have people from all the different cultures and groups of the world, north, south, east, and west, all come from the entire world to be part of the New Jerusalem. That's why you have three gates on each side of the city. The holy city is built on the foundation of the apostles, though, and the twelve apostles represent all those who founded their belief since the time of Christ on the teachings of Christ. And so we have both Old Testament salvation, New Testament salvation, people from all human history coming to be part of God's, God's, God's kingdom. And, <clears throat> 21.2, I saw the holy city, this is Revelation 21.2, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed, for her husband. Who is the bride of Christ? We are. And the new Jerusalem is the bride, founded on the apostles, with the gates of the Old Testament patriarchs. Think, just think through the imagery that God's trying to teach us here. By the way, do you know the shape of the, uh, of the new Jerusalem? If you actually... It's a cube. What's the shape of the most holy place? It's a cube. You think that's accidental? The place where we come into unity and oneness with God is also the place where God dwells. And what does this say about there'll be no temple in there because God will be its temple? And what's in the most holy place but the Shekinah presence of God? And what's in... And there's a lot of interesting imagery here. What's the, uh, what's the lining of the, in, of the most holy place? What's the pavement of the New Jerusalem? Oh. Okay. I mean, you, you can go on and on and on. Tuesday's lesson. I got a quote from the Spirit of Prophecy on that. Yeah, go ahead. It's from Desire of Ages. It says, before the, I think it's this one, it's, uh, it, it describes the scene. It's before the heavenly angels and the representatives of unfallen worlds. So one of the thought processes on the 24 elders is that they're representatives of, of the unfallen worlds. It says they are dis, uh, declared just... Uh, Declared justified, where he is, there his church shall be mercy, and truths are met together, righteous and peace uh, have kissed each other. The Father's arms encircle his Son, and the world is given. Let us let all the angels of God worship him with joy unutterable, rulers and principalities and powers acknowledge the supremacy of the Prince of Life. So, so does she say the, uh, the representative of unfollowed worlds are sitting on the thrones? It doesn't say that there. No, it doesn't say that. So how do we know it's not the representative of the unfollowed world of the throne? We know it's not, and we can have reason it out. 
They're there. They're part of the heavenly host, the 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands. So it's happening before them. But how can we be sure it's not, they're not on the thrones? Well, but it then if it's at the time of the ascension of, of, of Jesus, then you would, have, you would have the 12 sons of Jacob and the 12 apostles being alive. Uh, no, no, we, no, we wouldn't, um, because they're a symbolic representation of those groups. So they would be people, the, uh, people, the, uh, the actual individuals. I'm not suggesting that, okay, if people thought I meant the actual literal people, I didn't mean the actual literal people. I meant that those thrones represent people f- that symbolically came through those gateways or doors. Okay? I didn't mean the actual 12 literal people were sitting on those thrones, if that's what somebody thought I meant. But I do think those thrones are for humans to sit on and not other beings. Why do we know that? Why can we be confident in that? Let's put it that way. Because it says they have redeemed us. Pardon? Because in verse chapter 5 it says they have redeemed us. The redeemed us? So the, there's also the translation could be... Um, there's, a, there's a difference in translation there. Stephen Bohr has a really interesting study on that. But who does Christ share his throne with? Who is told that we will sit on his throne with yeah, him? Chapter 1 of Revelation says that we shall... Yes, humans sit on the throne with him, not the other beings of the other worlds. So we can have a very strong confidence that the people sitting on the thrones are human beings, not intelligence of the worlds, even though they're part of the grand assembly. And so I guess my other question would be, like in Job, when he talks about all the representatives coming to the throne and representing their world, Satan coming as our representative, how, how does that fit into the picture? Yes, I think, that's the, I think that is the grand assembly. And in the grand assembly there, but they're not on the thrones. The thrones are human beings. But in the grand assembly, I think the intelligent beings from all over the other planets and worlds out there that have not fallen are part of that grand assembly. There's no question in my mind about that. Uh, Tuesday's lesson. What is contained in the book sealed with the seven seals? The history of the world. I like that very much. From the beginning to the end. This is out of Manuscript Releases, Volume 9, uh, second paragraph. In the words of Ellen White, the sealed scroll contains the history of God's providences, the prophetic history of the nations, and the church. Herein was contained the divine utterances with authority, uh, his commandments, his laws, the whole symbolic counsel of the eternal, and the history of all ruling powers in the nations. In symbolic language was contained in the role, uh, in that role, the influence of every nation, tongue, people, from the beginning of verse history to this close. And so in the Remedy New Testament, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, it reads like this. Then I looked, and I saw that he who sits on the throne had written out the history of the world before the world began and sealed it up. It was symbolized by a book in his right hand with the writing within and, seven, and sealed with seven seals. As I watched... And I watch as a mighty angel asks with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the book of God's foreknowledge and intervene in human history? Yeah, and that goes on to describe, you know, I think the, the book. And so, my book is that the book is the book of God's foreknowledge. That he recorded in some way. And it's not lambskin. It's not parchment. It's not paper with, with glue binding. that's a symbolic representation of some type of data recording system of some kind. Well, that's how John knew paper and books. Right, right. So, so, you know, don't take a a scroll literally. It's actually a little... But it's symbolically saying to our minds in ways we can comprehend that God, before he began creating intelligent beings, in his foreknowledge, recorded what was going to unfold. And he sealed it. And then as he created my view... He, part of his creation were angels that he t- 
tasked with recording history as it unfolds. And as history unfolds, they keep an accurate recording of what's actually transpiring throughout the universe. And as the book with the seven seals is open, it's compared with what actually is transpiring, and you find an exact match, which would be important. Why? What would it show us? For knowledge. God's being honest. He has a plan. For knowledge, God's being honest. Any other thoughts? Any other reasons for that. God was right in what he decided to do. He was right in what he decided to do. That he's awesome. <laughs> I like that. The only reason is how about is there anything related to your freedom that God has perfect foreknowledge and you still have perfect freedom. As did the people who were there. Which is one of the concerns that many have in Christianity today that God can't have foreknowledge because if he has foreknowledge, you're not free. Hmm. Open theism. So he can only know the possibilities. He's a great calculator in the sky. He calculates all the possible choices, but he didn't know the choice until you make it. This, I think, will refute that. He knew all along, but he still gave all of his beings absolute freedom. He didn't use it coercively, manipulatively, or in any other way to undermine autonomy and liberty. Yes. Does that imply that uh, God is bound by a linear timeline then, or, or is it just the created beings that are? Or? My view is that created beings exist in a linear existence. God is an infinite being who exists outside of time. And so with God, all points in time are equally accessible to him. And Jesus would leave at times and go into the infinity councils with the Father. But no, it says in 1 Timothy 6.16 that God lives in unapproachable light. I don't think that's photons. I think it's infinity. Infinity of knowledge, infinity of love, infinity of time. He, he's, he's accessing all reality through all time constantly, and no finite being can enter it. We step into that, it's beyond the capacities, and we would fry. Not because of a punishment, but just it would burn us out. So we can't enter that. And so if God, who is love, wants a close intimacy with his created beings who live in a linear existence, what has to happen? A member of infinity has to leave infinity and step into linear existence. And that member is Jesus. He's the bridge builder. He's the mediator. He's the go-between. And so he's the one who left infinity and stepped out into linear existence, initially in heaven in the form of an archangel, and eventually an incarnated in, into a human being. But it was always that going on. So I, I believe he lives outside of time. And that also answers when you understand those processes, how people in the Old Testament were saved by what Christ achieved at the cross. They weren't saved by animal sacrifices. Bible's very clear on that. That was only an object lesson. They were saved by the achievements of Christ. How? Because if you live outside of time, just if physical reality, if uh, we discovered penicillin in 1940, I can't remember the exact date, but around there, and we have a time machine. Once we have the penicillin in our hand, we can pop into, we can go back in time and we can use it. If we have it. So you live outside of time, you can apply it anywhere once you have it. But you have to have it first. So once Christ achieved what he achieved, it can be applied by God anywhere in time because he lives outside of time. This idea with the scrolls, I think, harmonizes nicely with the symbology of the four beings that are um, supporting the throne. They're all covered with eyes which is symbolic of God's government being open to investigation, welcoming investigation. Well, I like that. We've got nothing to hide. This is the reason why he wrote the scroll. Just, 
it's, it's one more evidence of trustworthiness. And why it was sealed is because as a finite linear being, if you actually are told that next week you're going to be in an accident and be paralyzed from the neck down, you won't make the same decisions this week. <laughs> Will you? No. So, so, so to reveal that to finite beings would, would actually take some of their freedom from them. They wouldn't be free to make the same choices anymore. Do you understand that? Yeah. Okay. So, moving on uh, to uh, Wednesday's lesson. Why is the... It's worthy as the lamb. Why is the lamb... Yes. Sorry. Bottom of, of Tuesday's lesson, in the second paragraph, the sealed scroll comprised God's plans for resolving the sin problem. No doubt with his immeasurable power, God himself could realize that plan. It's not about power. Yeah, good point. Thanks for pointing that out. Can God get what he wants by the exercise of might and power? Evidence for that. Let's be evidence-based. Has God ever used might and power in human history? Let's, let's just cite some places. To create, for, six, creation. for six days. Creation. Okay, after sin. Fire from heaven on Carmel with Elijah. Okay, so, let, yes, the flood. Did the be, human beings after the flood demonstrate loyalty and love to God? No. Con, uh, the Tower of Babel and the confusing the languages. Did after that we have loyalty and devotion to God? Uh, Egypt and the ten plagues and, uh, and all the things and Red Sea and so forth and so on. Were the children of Israel now faithful and loyal after that display of power? Carmel, fire coming down. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now we have faithful history of loyalty to God thereafter. This is why it says, Zechariah, not by might, nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works. Because what the what Lord wants, he wants your love, your trust, your loyalty, your devotion, your heart to be transformed, to be like his. And that cannot be achieved by power. Well, at least not the type of power that we're talking. It is, there is a certain type of power, the power of truth. There's a power in truth. There's a power in love. That, so that's the power of truth and love. And that's the, Paul talks about the power of the gospel. That power can be used. But, but not the other power. Linda. Isaiah 26, uh, starting with verse 7. The path of the righteous is level. O upright one, you make the way of the righteous smooth. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. My soul yearns for you in the night. My, in the morning, my soul longs for you. When your judgments come upon the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. Though grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness, even in a land of uprightness. They go on doing evil and regard not the majesty of the Lord. So tell us what that means. Well, to me, we think of judgment as um, you know, God's wrath reaching out and, and crushing us or some you know, bad people. But this to me is saying the Lord the laws of the Lord are as you describe perfectly, um, I mean, perfectly uh, resulting in harmonious and life that can be ongoing. (coughs) And the judgments of the Lord are actually meant to teach us righteousness. What is right? So just replace the word judgments with diagnoses and therapeutic interventions. In his judgment, this is the problem. And in his judgment, this is the intervention that will bring healing and solution. 
And that's the better way under design law to understand the word judgment. When you understand it under imperialism, you think of arbitrary rules, enforcing and punishing and so forth. But no, you're exactly right. The laws of the Lord are design laws. He makes a judgment. Here's the problem. Here's a judgment, an intervention that is likely to bring them to repentance and show them where their shortcomings are so they can have healing. That's what the text was saying to me. But despite things like the flood, etc., etc., whatever comes upon the earth, the wicked don't learn that about God. That's they correct. see it a whole different way. So why is the lamb worthy? Why is the lamb worthy according to the text? Because he was slain. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Okay, why is being slain make him worthy? Peter was slain. Stephen was slain. Does that make them worthy? He could have used force to stop that. Thank you. Jesus had all power available to him. He was not helpless, thief on the cross. All power is available to him. You've heard the statement, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely? He had absolute power. He had absolute power. Was he corrupted by it? No. What's it say? Think this through. On the cross, tormented, teased, beaten, spit upon, mocked. And he didn't have to do the old I dream a genie, you know, blink the eyes, old bewitch twinkle the nose. He just had to have the thought be gone. He could have wiped him out with the thought. What's it say about him that he would rather let his creatures kill him than use his power to stop them? So so do you find him worthy of having the power? This is why worthy, worthy, worthy. He is worthy to have all power because he's proven that he is not corrupted by the power. Is it unreasonable to suggest that he wrote the scrolls? That he did the writing? Christ? Yeah. No, I, I, that wouldn't, I wouldn't have a problem if, if Christ did that. What's the point to give him a power if he is not using it? What's the point of giving him the power if he's not using it? Let's go to the next, let's go to the next paragraph. As Christ the Lamb approached the throne, he takes the scroll. This act shows that all authority and sovereignty belongs to him. Do you, when you hear that, all authority, does your computer, the thing in your head, immediately kick up a couple of other places in Scripture where all authority was given to Jesus? Can you think of one? Thank you. John 13, brilliantly said. John 13, it says, Jesus knew that the Father had given him all authority over everything, and that he'd come from God and was going to return to God. So in John 13, Jesus gets all authority. Now, with all authority, and some versions say all power, because that word can be authority or power. He gets all authority, all power. What did Jesus then go and do with the power that he just got? You say, what, what's the purpose in having it? So what's he doing? He went and did something. He washed Service. the disciples' feet. He washed the disciples' feet. Symbolically, what is represented by washing the feet? Cleansing. Not simple service. He could have fed them food for service. There's a specific thing that's represented in washing the feet. Slavery. Adventists should know this. When we do the foot washing, what are you told it's symbolic of? Humility. Not just humility. What's the washing of the feet? Baptism. It is the cleansing of sin. Cleansing. The feet are what trample in the dirt. And it's symbolic of how we get dirty in sin in our lives. And washing the feet is cleansing us from sin. It's the symbolic of... Uh, you, if, once you've been baptized... Your whole, you know, symbolically you're washed, you're still going through this world and you can still get dirt in your life, sin in your life, mess up sometimes. And the washing of the feet is the symbolic cleansing for somebody who's already submitted to Christ. The finishing of the cleansing, the, the completion of the cleansing. That's what he did with power, symbolically. Now, in heaven, he receives all power. What do you think he goes and does with it? Continues cleansing. The cleansing of the sanctuary. Which is? You and I. 
the cleansing of the hearts and minds of his people so that when he comes, we will see him face to face for we shall be like him. That's what he does with the power. He cleanses us. He restores us to, to godliness. Do you understand this corruption of penal theology has infected Adventism and this message about a God in heaven who was going to use his power to cleanse your heart and mind and restore you in righteousness has been replaced with this legal fraud that he's using the power in heaven to go through record books and apply his blood to books to remove historical deeds so you can be declared righteous even though you're not righteous, which means you're going to stay unrighteous or corrupt in your heart, but you're going to be declared by God to be righteous. And do you want to know why the Adventist church is paralyzed and there's been a delay? Because the final message of mercy, which is to call people from all walks of life, no matter their upbringing, no matter their denomination, no matter their religious group, is, that, is to call them back to a creator God who will fix the, the fear and selfishness in their heart, put love for God, honesty, integrity, loyalty, fidelity, create in them character that, that's selfless and other-centered. They're not looking for that. Nobody's looking for that. Because they've got to pass they got the blood of Jesus who's paid the penalty. And in fact, if you don't obey the rules the way my church says you should obey the rules, well, you've got a demerit, and God is going to torture you in hell for that demerit. And that's the corruption in every church. And we have a responsibility to take the final message of mercy, the three angels' message, worship him, fear God and give glory to be in all of him, glorify him in your character, reveal his character, because the hour in human history has come for people to make a right judgment, the hour of his judgment, people to see him for who he is and throw off this imperial lie that comes from the dark ages and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. And Babylon, that system of confusion and imperialism has fallen, has fallen. Come out of her, my people. That's where we find ourselves. I'm praying that, uh, that God will bring more workers to the field. More people will start sharing this message and we can, we can see our Lord coming. Gracious Father in heaven, we, we count it such a privilege to call you our Father and we are so thankful for your love and your truth. We pray the outpouring of your spirit of love and truth. Enlighten our minds, rewrite in our being your methods, your character, your principles, your design. Empower us to go out and be lights in this world so that the world can be lighted and you can come soon. Amen. Amen.